Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today, we got a Q&A. Now, a couple announcements, real quick. Um, first of all, uh, we got a new cover art, so get familiar with the new artwork. I will be honest, I was going, I was looking for the link so I could share it, the, the podcast that we aired today as we're recording this, on my story, and I pulled up like my Spotify, and I was like, what the fuck is the podcast? And I was like, oh yeah, shit, we got a new I literally forgot. So that's why I'm saying this now is like, hey, guys, there's a new one. So you're going to see a new picture. Um, Let us know what you think. I think it's way better. I like it a lot. Um, Second thing is some of the episodes right now, it's not all of them because we pre-record these, but soon, hopefully all of them, um, you might be able to watch. So like if you go to the Joe DeFranco one that just aired, um, which is a phenomenal podcast, you can check that one out. You can actually watch the video and all interviews for sure are going to be on there, but it's cool. Cause you can actually open your phone and just watch it on there. Um, I, I posted on my newsletter and, and said like, you guys can watch it on Spotify, blah, blah. Uh, somebody asked about YouTube and I said, I don't know yet. So if you're going to ask that question, we don't know yet. Um, cause I know that's going to come up cause some people have mainly, uh, which is cool. International people have rec- asked that cause they like the subtitles that YouTube will generate. Um, we may or may not do that, but the point is, is we are just, we're trying to just level up every little aspect. So there's a few new features. So the, the new thumbnail I think is way cleaner. It's more relevant because it's a picture when it's actually me at this stage of life. Um, you can tell by, I'm, I'm like 10 pounds lighter, just in ink in the last photo. Um, and then uh, the video, uh, we're, we're improving some quality stuff. We're putting out a lot more reels too for the content side of things. I'm trying to get this message out. So keep sharing the podcast. Our goal is to, to approach those top spots of fitness podcasts. Like we're taking it really seriously right now. So help us accomplish that goal. Um, there's also, I saw it on the last Q&A, um, the, the Q&A thing. There's like a little button. so On Spotify. On Spotify. So you can actually ask us questions directly through Spotify. And I don't mean like, as always, you know, you can go to the description. You can click the link that says Ask Cody and you can fill out the form. But there's actually like a feature in Spotify, which is really cool, that says like ask question or you can put whatever. We ask did. question for the next Q&A. Yeah, exactly. That's what we put. Um, so you can do different like surveys, stuff like that. Um, Spotify stepping up yeah. their game, man. I love uh, it. Who was I, t- I was talking to somebody about this, like whether you listen to it on iTunes or Spotify. I don't listen to any podcasts on iTunes anymore yeah. or Apple or whatever it is because I guess it's not they technically don't. iTunes, but it's Apple Podcasts. There you go. Yeah. Um, it's way slower. Mm. Like, I don't know. If, you, if you're listening to this right now on Apple Podcasts, at least in my experience, Spotify loads so much faster. The, the episodes update. Like, I have to refresh like yeah. six times before it finally pops up. Yeah. Spotify, it's always there. All these cool little features. You can watch shit on Spotify. So, Spotify's stealing the show. I love it. They're taking over the game. And I don't listen to Apple Music either. Like, yeah. I don't use that for, for music. So, um, which I will say this. Now that I have hung out with Jake... Uh, the singer of Oxford Red and everything, and I've learned more about the music industry. If you do really like a band or an artist and you really want to support them, buy you the should go album. buy the album on Apple Music because they make way more money from that. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, they don't make shit off Spotify. Yeah. I felt kind of bad because I was like, bro, I listen to your shit on Spotify all the time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, everybody does, though. No. And he said, he was like, I don't care, bro. Like, yeah. he's like, that's why... That's why we go on tour. That's why we have merchandise and stuff like that. So that's another point. Like if if you have an artist that you love, buy their merch, buy buy their album, stuff like that, because that actually supports them. But um, if you want to support us with this podcast, share it with a friend. Leave us a review. That's all you got to do. Um, and that rhymed. 
quick shout out to the sponsors of this podcast. As always, first and foremost, Taylor Coaching Method. Of course, we sponsor our own fucking podcast. Uh, head over to taylorcoachingmethod.com slash online dash coaching if you want individualized training and nutrition that beats anybody else in the industry. I'm biased, but I think our team is the best. Uh, as well as giantlifting.com, you can use TCM10 to save 10% on any of your fitness equipment needs for your garage gym, your CrossFit gym, your actual gym, whatever you want. Or if you're working out outside or uh, by your living room, you just need dumbbells or kettlebells or bands. They got everything, literally. And then last but not least, firstform.com slash tailored coaching method for the widest range of products and the highest quality of products in the supplement industry and free shipping. So check those out, guys. And without any further ado, let's, let's get answer, into the questions. Yeah, let's answer some questions. All right, cool. We've got our first one coming from Annette May. It says, is it better to take creatine pre-workout or post-workout? Also, I'm currently doing the female physique program on the Tailored Trainer app, which what is the benefit from doing box squats versus full range? So this is kind of a two-part question. I've noticed that it is also in your glute specialization program and wondered if it is better glute activation. Um, okay, so really easy way to answer the uh, creatine question. There's three things here. Number one, I wrote a blog a while back called The Definitive Guide to Creatine Monohydrate. I believe something like that. Um, we'll link that in the description of the podcast. Cause that is probably one of the most in-depth guides that you'll find online. I think there's like one other one that is pretty competitive. I'm not going to say, cause I want you to visit ours, but it's a pretty damn good blog. I will, I'll give them credit without actually giving them verbal credit <laughs> and saying their names, but, uh, go check that out because it'll tell you everything you need to know. And then it backs it up by the research. So it will answer the question I'm about to answer. Um, but if you feel like learning a little bit more, diving into science, that's the place to go. Uh, number two, creatine monohydrate is going to be better absorbed post-workout in most research. Um, most research that has been done on creatine, and creatine is probably the, one of the most well-researched uh, ergogenic aids that's natural. So ergogenic means uh, performance enhancing, um, and this is not a drug. So per performance enhancing aid is different than PED, which is performance enhancement drug, steroids. Um, but it's usually shown that it's best consumed post-workout alongside carbohydrates and protein that's just been shown to be the most beneficial um however there's also a lot of research that shows it doesn't fucking matter so it's either post-workout or it's very neutral um the reason i would say it's probably neutral is because if you think about most things being done post-workout your anabolic sensitivity i guess you could call it is just a little bit higher you just got done training so your insulin sensitivity is better you're probably bringing in nutrients muscle protein synthesis spiked so if we're looking at signals of muscle growth and strength and performance they're already heightened so to throw creatine in there on top of that time of course it's probably gonna be heightened um especially if you're doing anaerobic style training and ATP is generated up. Creatine also helps generate ATP. So there's a tie in there. Um, but we can't say it's not true because research does show post-workout. But there's a lot of research that just shows as long as you take it every day, it doesn't matter. So the whole like creatine loading thing where you take extra creatine on the front end to load and then you taper it off, which was really popular for a long time until people realized you don't really need to do it and you're probably just wasting your money. And of course, supplement companies are going to push you to do that because you run out of the creatine faster. You got to take a bunch at the beginning. You got to buy more. Yeah. Um, it's pointless. You just take three to five grams a day every day, which is usually just one scoop of creatine and you're good. The, because creatine, it, it's kind of like the whole like, well, what's better for uh, 
muscle or fat or anything. Is it three meals or six meals? Well, technically for most people, it doesn't matter because if you have three or more feedings of protein, you're probably going to, and you're hitting the total amount of protein, you're going to have protein circulating. So amino acids circulating in your bloodstream constantly. And if your amino acid pool, which is the stream of amino acids floating around is full, you're going to have enough protein in your system to recover. And it doesn't matter if you have three or five servings. There's a little bit of research that shows maybe more feedings is better for some people, but like to that point, that's how creatine works. When you first start taking creatine, it's probably not going to do much, but after a couple of weeks, you've saturated your creatine phosphate stores. And essentially now you have creatine monohydrate just kind of floating in your bloodstream and your body's going to pull from it as it needs to regenerate ATP and recover and hydrate the muscle and so on and so forth. So if I take it today post-workout, does it really matter? Cause I'm not using that right now. I'm just adding to the pool and the pool keeps circulating. You know what I mean? So like as long as your pool is full and it's circulating, it doesn't matter when you take it. So take it whenever. Don't don't worry about the stress. Just take it. Um, I take mine first thing in the morning with my greens drink and I train at 3 p.m. So that's not not even pre-workout. That's like hours before my training. But it's the easiest time for me to remember because it sits right next to the greens powder and I just put them both in and I'm done. Um, So my recommendation is just do it every day and do it when you're going to remember to do it most and easiest. The second question about box squats, specific to the female physique program, um, because I do use it in there. So I use it in there for two reasons. Number one, a box squat is typically going to be a slightly wider stance. Um, So this isn't definitive because obviously things change slightly when your limb length is different and your mechanics, so on and so forth, uh, how you position your body. But typically I would say, yeah, it's a little bit more glute dominant. Um, But Truthfully, it depends because if somebody, for example, has really long femurs and they're, they're a hip dominant squatter, well, then a regular back squat is going to be more hip dominant because you sit back into a squat because you're hip dominant squatter. And if you remove the box, you go deeper. If you go deeper, you create a bigger stretch. And we know based on research that the end range where you're stretching the muscle under load, that's the most hypertrophic point of the range of motion. So a back squat would be more uh, influential for building glutes in a box squat in that case. But for somebody like myself, who's not, and who usually does back squats with heels elevated, focusing on my quads, a box squat is going to force me to sit back Mm -hmm. and it's going to be more glute dominant. So I put it in that program for two reasons. One, because whether you're, because this is a membership group, so I can't individualize like I can with my one-on-one clients. So if I make it a box squat, everybody's going to sit back into it. And now it kind of makes everybody do a glute dominant squat, you know, and usually you stand a little bit wider because it depends how you use the box, but I never have it flat, right? Like for those listening, I'm like trying to do this with my hands, but I angle the box. So the like corner of the box is like going through my legs. It kind of forces me to sit back into it. And then the box doesn't, the edge of the box doesn't hit my leg too early. That makes me sit back further and I get a bigger stretch of my glutes. It's a little bit more posterior dominant. So yes, uh, box squats are typically more posterior dominant for most people. And that's why I put it in there. But the other aspect of it too, is that the female physique program is a high volume, lower intensity program. And I don't mean intensity as in like it's low intensity. It's not hard because it is difficult and it's challenging, but the intensity from a load perspective is lower. So we have more volume as in more sets and reps in higher rep sets, but we are actually uh, bringing loads down and focusing more on like physique bodybuilding. That's why it's called female physique. But the reason I have box squats is because we're chopping the range of motion in half, which means it's probably going to be a less demanding movement, which allows me to overload it more. So it's kind of like a hack to say like, hey, I still want you to overload this and go heavy, 
because we're trying to create that adaptation, but I'm going to limit the range of motion so it's not too stressful because we have a five days a week of high volume. And in the female physique program, you hit your glutes three days a week because it's lower, upper, legs, push, pull. And so you go lower body, upper body, legs, lower body, push. And then on the pull day, you have glutes and then back. So it's not just upper body pull, but you start with, I think like sumos or hip thrusts. Like, so we are doing a little bit of glute in posterior chain, lower body before moving into the rows and the poles and biceps and stuff like that. So because we're hitting the, the legs and the glutes three times a week, I try to minimize fatigue, uh, CNS wise, so central nervous system wise, as well as joint wise by doing little things like that, making the squat into a box squat. Yeah. Right. And this is all, that's just a good tip for programming in general, like to coaches, like your programming should be really well thought out. And then for people running programs, it's not as simple as it looks. So people are just like, Oh, it's just legs. And it's like, no, there's like the level of depth of why I chose a box squat instead of a back squat is so well thought out. Yeah. People wouldn't think that. They just think, oh, squat. So I can do any squat, right? No, you can't. There's a, a fucking reason. And there's a reason this is before the rest and the order of operations. There's a reason it's not, because more commonly it's uh, upper, lower, push, pull, legs. But this one's lower, upper, legs, push, pull. Because the only way I could get the third glutes day while spreading them out 48, 72 hours to still allow recovery and muscle protein synthesis to go through its full cycle is to spread it out that way and to change the order of operations from a normal five-day split. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, reasoning behind some of that stuff. And and this is why, like, even, you know, with and this is what's nice about, like, one, if you're in the tailor trainer and you're not asking questions like this, you should be. Like, this is why the podcast is so beneficial for those members because you can ask questions about the programs and hear more about it. It's also why you should watch the videos associated with every program. So I, I get questions all the time on Instagram. Like what program should I be doing? I'm like, have you watched the videos? No. I'm like go watch the videos. Cause there's a video for every program. Um, now I will say this too, in the new app, it is easier to navigate through those. There's way more depth and there's a forum that's going to be sick that we can do what we're doing right now in there. So, um, but the, the content's still there for you to learn about this stuff. So there's always more to it. Um, don't just assume you can swap exercises out. Like everything is there for a reason. But totally. now I'm digressing. So, All right. No worries. So we will move on to the next question. We got one coming from Leanna. It says, I am 19, 70 kilograms, 172 centimeters, and currently doing the bulletproof bodybuilding female five times a week. I'm thinking about doing a bikini competition in a few years. So I have a bit of time. Uh, I just wondering what you think a general timeline would be for a goal like this in regards of time spent in cuts, maintenance, and bulking. I am planning on getting a coach in the future in a year or so since I feel like doing the app is working really, really well for me as of right now. What split or, or no, no, what split and what calorie cycling would you recommend? Thank you. I love the podcast. Okay, so two separate questions. Let's kind of tackle both of them. What split would I recommend is one of them, right? Like what training split? Uh, what would the general timeline for a goal like to regard okay. spent, spent in cuts, maintenance, and bulking? What split and what calorie cycling? Okay, so what timeline, what training split, what calorie cycling? That's yeah. a lot. Um, and th they plan on doing the show in 2025. Yeah, so. Two years. Three years. I mean, it's all, it, this is such a hard question to ask because typically I think the smartest approach 
that like bodybuilders take when they're competitive is they usually do shows like every two to three years, right? So that means like they're usually, which is on par with what she's saying right now. If you want to make the most progress possible, that's probably it. Um, but how you go about that depends, you know, like I, I know like for me right now, if I was like, you know, I'm going to fuck it. I'm going to do a bodybuilding show. I probably wouldn't wait three years. I would just like figure out when the best time for my lifestyle is to go into a cut. I'd probably lean bulk or just bulk the rest of the year and then start right after the holidays are done in January and just plan a six month prep with some like diet breaks involved. And I'd be ready because her to ask this question, it's like, well, where's your starting point? I don't know. Cause I can't see you. You know, you gave me your, your weight and height, but who knows what that composition is like. So, um, the timeline, I mean, you're probably on, I don't think anybody can go wrong with three years. That's plenty of time. Um, if you have now the differences is the cycling of bulking cutting is if you have, if you're in a place where I look at you and I'm like, you need to build more muscle, then we're going to spend more time not dieting. If you don't need to build much muscle, we're going to spend less time trying to build muscle because the last thing I want to do is put somebody who's already got a good amount of muscle mass through bulks. That's just going to add fat. And then we're going to have to pull it off. And it's more, I'm going to be like, Hey, why are we waiting three years? Yeah. Let's do a show in a year, take off season, do another one in three years, like from now, which is like a year, year break, a year, right? Like that makes sense. So it kind of depends on where you're starting at. Um, now the, the actual, which is why it's hard for me to say like for cycling calories, I don't know. Like if you're three years out, I mean, I would like my general advice is as general as I can get for anybody at all. I don't see much use in, in trying to gain a serious amount of muscle in less than six months. So if you're going to really go after this the right way, I would say you should, you're probably going to want to spend anywhere between six and 12 months intentionally trying to build muscle, which means that you are going to be eating above maintenance calories. You don't need to be in a huge surplus. In fact, I would probably recommend being in a very small surplus so that you don't accumulate a bunch of fat and just get fat in the process. Um, and if you can do that, then you should really just continue that as long as you possibly can until you get to a point where you plateau and or have too much body fat, which is usually around the same time. So you're slowly building muscle and gaining size. And then at a certain point, you kind of like, myself example, I got to 11 months and I was gaining really slow. But after 11 months, I, I was at 16 pounds gained. For women, probably going to be a little bit less than that. I'm a guy. Um, some of that was fat, but it wasn't like an absurd amount. But by the time 11 months hit, I could honestly say like, okay, my lifts really aren't progressing anymore. I don't feel like I'm noticeably getting bigger muscular wise. And uh, I'm starting to get a little uncomfortable. Like I, I can see a little bit of the fat. I'm not like lethargic or like super heavy, but yeah, I'm getting a little bit watery, not as much definition. That's a good time for a cut. You need to create some sensitivity. So stepping away from the same training, go into a diet to improve insulin sensitivity, all these different things, health, um, give yourself a change of pace, some motivation, shave off some of the fat, see what you got, and then go back into a bulk. That's a mini cut, really. So what I would probably say is six to 12 months of, of lean bulking, and you stop when you get to that point that I just described, then you go through a mini cut, which is going to be anywhere between four to eight weeks, eight weeks being the absolute max. Then you go back into a lean gaining phase and do the same exact fucking thing. Then you go into a mini cut and you literally do that process until you are one year out from the show. And when you're one year out from the show, you need to determine a date and then you can articulate how long the gaining and uh, cut needs to be. So if you are one year out of where you want to be and then you go, okay, let me find some shows. And I would probably recommend booking a couple because a lot of times it's nice to have like a small test run if you can. Let's say you have two shows. The first one's in seven months. The second one's in seven and a half or eight months, which is ideal right around those times. Well, if you have 
seven and a half months till your main show, seven months to, before your first show, and you can calculate how much weight you need to lose and you only need four months technically, then I would probably give yourself six months, which means you have one month as a transition from gaining to cutting, which means you go to maintenance, deload your training quite a bit and just relax and just get ready for a prep. Then you go into a prep and you're just slowly trying to shave off fat and limit how many diet breaks you need because you don't really, if you're doing it slow and steady, you shouldn't be needing to take too many. It's not going to help much if you're doing things right besides psychological. So that could be just a couple of days, could be a week, but whatever um, lines up time-wise. Um, that's as generic as it's going to be, but I can't really dive any deeper than that without having your information right in front of me. Now, the training split, I, I mean, shit, this is the one where I'm like, I don't think it really matters. Like, you could do numerous amounts of things. So what I would say is, you know, you talked about hiring coach. Now is probably the time to hire a coach because if you want to make the most out of your muscle gaining season, now is the time you want somebody customizing your training because to build muscle, it's so for example, like Ariel, I'm taking over her training and she wants to be an IFBB pro on our team. Um, and she's gotten pretty damn far. Obviously she's you know, done really well competing. Oh, yeah. She's obviously knows how to prep. Um, but the only way she's going to be able to build a, a considerable amount of muscle to put her on stage and win for that level is if she has a high degree of inf- individualization. So that's why she asked me. We started talking. I started looking through her programming. And there were so many things. That I was like, oh, you got to tweak this, tweak this, tweak this. She was progressing. But if you want to get the most out of the least amount, that's what you have to do. And so... It depends. You're already doing the Taylor Trainer. You're getting great gains. I think she said she's doing the five-day program. So that's typically what I would recommend. Sometimes I will say do a push-pull legs and do six days a week. But honestly, I think five days is plenty, especially for a bikini athlete because you're, you're not a bodybuilder. So you don't need to be huge. You need to be like lean and dense and have muscle definition. Um, five days is a lot and it's plenty if you're pushing hard. I would rather see somebody train five days a week and push it really hard than six days a week and be burnt out all the time or not be able to go super hard because they're training so often. Um, but my approach would be to do that. And then if you were to go the individualized approach, and I've literally done this with somebody recently, I've taken them down a day. So I'm like, Hey, you can handle a lot of volume, but I'm going to take you down a day and we're going to like really dial things in because every exercise you're doing with me is going to be harder. Kind of back to that, uh, podcast we did on, it was like six ways, I think, or seven ways or something, but completely tailor your training. Yep. So doing all those things allows people to feel the muscle so much more. They're doing, they're getting more out of less. So we don't have to do as much volume to accomplish as much. And I knew the soreness, the fatigue, everything was going to climb up when we started doing that. So I took a day off. Like we don't need to train as often as you were because we're going to get more out of less. And then when you accumulate to that, we can add back a day. Totally. So one of those two approaches, but either way, like I think you just got to remember too, as a bikini athlete, um, to win and to be competitive in that nature, you're focusing on very specific muscle groups. Whereas somebody who just generally wants to build muscle, six days might be fine because we're balancing volume across the board. But anytime I'm specializing in one to two body parts, I'm going to go with like four or five days a week, probably five, because I know that we're going to have to put more volume, like even extra volume in certain areas and pull back volume on other areas. So one, we don't need six days a week because we're not trying to do a lot of volume on everything. We're actually trying to do less on some things to not accentuate those or fatigue those areas so that we can focus more on the areas that actually get judged on. Totally. So like for women, glutes and hamstrings and the glute tie-in, uh, upper back, shoulders, lower back. For bodybuilding, I mean, for guys, every single muscle, you know, it's just it's just totally different. 
um, which is kind of what's weird about a sport that judges based on specific muscle groups and, and looks and stuff like that. Um, I love bodybuilding, but it's kind of fucked up. <laughs> if you think about it, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, but it's just, it's just a different animal with programming. So totally. Yeah. All right, cool. We will move on. We have an, uh, not another one. We have one from anonymous. It says I train early. Uh, I train early in the morning, 4 a.m., as that is the only time I can fit into my schedule. Since I train fasted, would EAAs be essential to drink? I don't eat anything as I need time to digest. I have small things like banana, protein shake, rice cakes, but I still don't find it helpful in my work to just fill full. Mm. Um, yeah, this it's hard because I think that, like, the, the leaner you are, the more important this becomes. So I personally believe that you should. So there, there's a couple schools of thoughts here. Number one, if you have, you are somebody, which I don't know, so you'll just have to listen to this and see which category you fit into. If you're somebody who has 30, 40, 50 pounds to lose, like you, your body's a pretty smart thing. So it's not going to start stripping away muscle because you're in a fasted state. It's got plenty of fat to burn, you know? Um, now, if you are... If you have 40 pounds to lose, but you're consuming a low protein diet, your body is, it may or may not start to pull muscle tissue. You might not lose muscle, but you're definitely not going to recover fully because you're not supplying your body with enough protein. If you have 40 pounds to lose and you are consuming enough protein, so let's say if you have 40 pounds to lose, I wouldn't say your body weight, but let's say your goal body weight in protein. So if you're 240 pounds, but you want to be 200 pounds, consume 200 pounds, grams of protein. Pretty simple. If you're doing that every day, you're going to have enough, going back to that first question, amino acid, uh, uh, enough amino acid, uh, like amino acids, I guess, in your bloodstream, right? The stream in the pool of amino acids, the pool is what I was looking for. It's going to be full, so you're going to be fine. But if you are super lean, um, if you have five pounds to lose and you're really lean already, then you're at greater risk of, of compromising muscle tissue. So it becomes more important to have those essential amino acids. I'm of the school of thought of like, why not? You know, amino acids do like whether people realize or not, because food labels can get around this. Essentially, amino acids do have calories. Some of the companies can get away with not putting the calorie caloric value on there, but they do. Um, it's an insignificant amount and that's why they can get away from it with it. But point being is that's something in your bloodstream. It's some kind of fuel and it's going to protect you from too much muscle protein breakdown it's not going to make you full bloated or anything. It just tastes like water or like Gatorade. So to me, I'm like, why would you not? You know what I mean? I think everybody should, if you're training fasted at least, because I think it makes the most sense. Now, if you have 40, 50 pounds to lose, I would probably just stay there. That's all you really need that or a whey protein shake, um, pre-workout. And as long as you don't feel the, the negative side effects of not having carbs in your system from, uh, during your training session, train fasted. It's not that big of a deal. Um, you'll be fine. If you are somebody who is on the leaner side, that's where I'm like, yeah, you probably should. You're going to be quicker to deplete muscle glycogen. You are also going to be more reliant on carbohydrates. And because you're waking up that early, like, yeah, you probably had carbs in your last meal. But if you ate your last meal at 7 p.m., that's still a really long period of time. And most research does support having carbs within a few hours um, of training. So um, I would highly suggest having that. And there's even studies that talk about pre-workout carb timing and it always it's funny to me because they'll say they have group a is in a fasted state group b it had carbohydrates before but even the fasted state they'll do like four hours fasted which makes sense too because if you got to be at the lab at 1 p.m they're going to be like hey just make sure you don't eat after 
9 a.m. or something yeah. like that because they want your like no recent food. Not all studies do that, but some studies do that. And to me, I'm like, that's not fasted. Fasted is like I haven't ate since yesterday and I'm on hour 12 because that's usually what people talk about. Or in this case, maybe it's been eight hours, you know. But point being, I would probably still do it. You're going to have uh, multiple different things. There's even research to show like even if you took like syrup or Gatorade or sugary beverage, you swirled around your mouth and spit it out. That little bit of carbohydrates, just like the T's of carbohydrates being in your system, will tell your brain to perform harder. And it's been shown in research. Like it's called mouth swooshing. So there's literally research on mouth swooshing. Uh, Brandon and I did a, a research review about a while way back. Syrup, huh? Um, yeah, because they use like a glucose <laughs> how solution. Do you, how do you swoosh syrup? You don't, but like you can put it in your mouth, taste it, mix around, and spit it out. But like there's ones where they actually eat. They called it sludge, but it's like glucose yeah. solution. It's like a syrupy yeah. like. Um, it, it it sounds weird, but I actually think there's some uh, validity to like the thicker the the solution or texture is actually the better because they've done it with zero calorie. So yeah. it's fake carbs. It's not even real carbs and people eat the sludge that is zero calorie. There's no carbs in it, but it tastes like carbs because it's thick yeah. and syrupy or whatever and they perform better. So it's weird. Um, but point being is I, like if the research supports it that much, I would go for it. But again, like if it's four in the morning, you drink a whey protein shake mixed with almond milk and have a banana and two rice cakes and then you try to train immediately. Of course you're going to be full as fuck. That's not going to feel good. Yeah. I'm talking like you eat that at four and train at five thirty. That's different, but even then, like my go-to would be like the first form supplement, Intraformance. It has uh, powdered fructose, so fruit. It has powdered carbs, so highly branched cyclodextrin, and it has essential amino acids, and it has electrolytes and sodium. So you have all your bases covered, and it's liquid. Yeah. So you can start sipping on it as you work out, and it'll immediately work for you. Um, it's designed to pass through the intestines quicker into the bloodstreams faster as as something that doesn't cause digestive issues. So. That would be, that's always my solution for people like that. Um, and if you're like really don't want to do the supplement route, then you would be doing, well, I mean, EAAs are a supplement, so a banana or something. But um, yeah, I think it's necessary to be honest with you. I, I don't see why not. The only time I ever take it away is like if, uh, if I have a client who are doing, we're in a fat loss phase and calories are getting low and I know they don't want to waste calories on that. We know that your performance doesn't have to be very high in order to maintain muscle. So I'm like, hey, let's have amino acids before to just protect muscle. Let's not worry about your performance going down as long as you're doing enough to maintain the muscle you have. Save the carbs for later in the day so you can eat yeah. them. It's going to be better for your adherence. Otherwise, I see no reason not to. Totally. So, Cool. All right. We will move on. Uh, we got one coming from Na. Is there a point of diminishing returns when it comes to steps or walking, I find myself uh, walking thirteen to 15,000 steps a day. Now, on the days that I walk, I walk more, I seem to have, little, have, have a little increased inflammation compared to days that I walk 13K. So 15 compared to 13. Mm -hmm. um, is it not or is it not available? I don't know. N-A. It's N-A. Maybe they, they felt no, the question for him. There's no slash. Yeah. Touche. Nah. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'd be shocked that 2000 extra steps would cause that much inflammation to be honest with you. Like that seems surprising to me. Um, I can't tell you wrong. <laughs> so I have no business to tell you that you're, you're incorrect. Um, I would assume that that might be a little bit more in your head. Like this sounds crazy, but like this stuff like this is always something to think about. Cause I think individuals are including myself, I think we're all more uh, hypochondriac-ish than we would realize in the sense of like, 
if you usually do 13,000 steps and then you went to bump it up and then the first time you did 15,000, you also like rolled your ankle and you kind of forgot about it. And now you have this idea that like the long walk made your ankle hurt. And now every time you go past 13,000 steps, your fucking ankle hurts. Yeah. Like literally, you know, um, there's even research of like, uh, amputees going, they have that mirror trick. Have you seen that? No. Where like they put their, their amputated arm, like halfway arm, like through this hole and there's a mirror and the mirror reflects their other arm and they actually feel the pain of when their arm got amputated off and like their pain receptors start kicking off. Dude, it's nuts. There's legit Damn. studies about this because it, it's a, it's a mental thing. Yeah. They literally see their arm cause the mirror and they fucking perceive the pain. Um, now I don't know if these people are like are sedated when they do this or what the, how they're tracking it, but there is like placebo research on the stuff. So part of me is like, we just got to make sure that that's not the case, you know? Um, but otherwise like to answer your actual question, is there like diminishing returns? Um, yes, there is a uh, few things. Number one, I do believe 8,000 to 11,000, I want to say, is the range. I could be wrong. If you go to examine.com, they actually have some research on this, I believe. I saw it on their Instagram, and then I think they had an article on it. Uh, but basically, like, if we look at heart health and blood sugar levels and in the health side of, of getting enough steps every day, there is a cutoff to where once you go beyond this point, you don't see more health benefits. It's essentially like as you take more steps, you actually start getting healthier, heart health, aerobic health, all these things start to improve. And then once you reach a certain point, if you add more steps, you actually don't get more heart health. You just, you kind of tap out there. And after that point, you're just burning more calories, right? Now on the other side, if burning calories is your goal, then that's irrelevant. It's like, hey, you got to step at least eight to 10,000 steps a day. And that's, I think that's why the 10,000 mark is so common is because it's right in the middle of the, the range. And it might be eight to 12. And that's why 10 is the, the thing. But after 10K, like 10K, you're good. Like you get your health, bang for your buck, you're, you're done there. If you want to burn more calories, you would increase beyond 10K. Um, however, I do believe in, we have a, we have an article on the website um, written by Dr. Brandon Roberts. It was a research review on NEAT, on exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, we can link it in the podcast. I want to say it's something along the lines of like step count or like how, uh, like how much do steps matter? Um, but I mean, we, it can be found on the website just typing in step count. But we'll link that and it basically talks about this whole thing. And I do believe there's a higher rate of adaptation when you go beyond a certain point too. So I want to say after like 15,000 steps, the caloric expenditure from that, like the adaptation to the steps increases faster. Again, I may be incorrect on the numbers, but I do believe, and it would make sense that as you start stepping more and more and more, your body gets better at adapting quicker. So you might see this huge bang for your buck as you're going up in step counts, but after a certain point, your body catches on quicker and it starts preserving easier, which is not what we want because that's metabolic adaptation, um, which would mean like at a certain point, yeah, you can keep stepping, but you probably should just cut your calories. That's yeah. why dieting is way more effective for fat loss. Then so, more and more steps. Yeah, or more and more cardio or anything like that. So, totally. yeah. Cool. All right, we have uh, one more here. It, said, it is from Catherine. It says, I'm a few weeks into my first TCM program. I consider myself an intermediate lifter as I, I have done some strongman training where I, I got used to setting weights based on reps times sets to push near failure for most exercises or sessions. Is it okay to do this rather than focusing on RPE or IRR suggestions? Good question. So she was used to looking at a set and a rep and just basically going as hard as she could. Yeah. 
Uh, is it necessary? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I would say this. I think that if you truly were pushing it that hard, you would be more accurately able to follow the recommended RPE and RIR. And most of my training is going to have an RIR of anywhere between zero to three. And if you're anywhere between zero to three, you're going to be getting great results. Cause that's again, like gun to your head, three reps left in the tank. I mean, you know, that's a lot. Like I did the half field squats yeah. yesterday and we had three thirty five on there and we were just working up to a heavy triple. I did my reps and I was like, that's it for me. And CJ was like, you could have squeezed out a few more. And I was like, I know, but like, I could, that was a lot. Like I could feel it and I know I'm getting the benefit I want there and I don't feel like being dead tomorrow when I go on my run. So I'm just going to stop there. If I was competitive in That's something that would need, yeah, exactly. Something that would require me to squat competitively, I probably would have pushed it further, yeah. but there's no reason to. So, um, and my point with this is simple is like the, the strength adaptations and the muscle growth that I got out of 335 for three is so close to what I would have gotten for 335 out of five, for five or 350 yeah. for three, that there's no reason for me to go that extra mile. I would rather stay at that RIR two, which I was, right, versus going to RIR zero because even if I squeezed out a little bit more muscle growth, I also squeeze out a lot more central nervous system fatigue and loading on my joints, which is what causes uh, me to need to deload more, take time out of the gym more, in, increase uh, likelihood of injury risk, things like that. So the RIR and the RPE scale are there to make sure that you're always in the zone of progressing and getting results, but you're never going to a point where you're breaking down other aspects of your nervous system, your joints, your body, um, stress levels, hormones, to a point where you need even more recovery because you're already going to need a lot of recovery from doing this stuff. So why put yourself in a position where it sets you back because you can't recover from what you're doing? Yeah. And that's the difference between an RIR zero and an RIR two, especially on big lifts. And if you're a strongman competitor, then you know, like all you do is big lifts. If you're doing lateral raises, yes, yeah, RIR zero. Go till you can't lift your arms up. I don't care. You'll be fine in two days. Like it's not that big of a deal. Um, so I do think it's necessary. I think it protects you from injury. It makes sure that you're staying within the recovery parameters that you should be in to make sure that results are progressing optimally over time. Um, and you're not getting hurt with that, obviously. Um, and the results are going to be just as good as going to failure most time. Like isolation exercises, I do think you need to take a little bit further, but compound lifts, especially because their main purpose is strength. Um, the, the research on RIR and RPE actually show you don't need to go as far for strength compared to hypertrophy. So for example, if I'm doing a barbell, like a half field squat for hypertrophy, I don't care how strong I get. I just want my quads get bigger. There's actually more reason for me to go to RIR zero or one. And if I was going for strength, I would actually want to stay at two, three or four. Like research supports staying a little bit further away from uh, failure, more so from a strength perspective, because once you're within 80%, you're in that submax zone, you're, you're going to be benefiting from a strength adaptation no matter what. Hypertrophy, you actually do kind of have to fatigue the muscle to a certain point. Some would argue even take it to a point of damage, but that's also why uh, high frequency programs probably aren't the best for muscle growth, in my opinion, especially for big muscle groups. You need more time to recover. Uh, for strength, they're amazing because you can stay further away from failure, not do as much volume, yeah. not cause as much damage keep at uh adaptating uh to strength adaptations like neurologically speaking so um 100 it's very very necessary uh stick to the rir rpe it's there for a reason it's going to keep you safe keep you progressing love so, it plain and simple cool um oh and real quick the new app uh is it's pretty dope it has a green light red light yellow light so like stoplight 
So instead of me saying RIR2, RIR3, like I wanted it even simpler and I wanted it to be like, it, I mean, if it's green, fucking go. You know, like it's basically like, like I got to, I can't remember if green is taking easy or green is going all the way or vice versa. Like red is like red light, like is taking it like all the way home. Failure. Like no, it's just like every exercise will have like a, a icon and oh, it'll gotcha. have like every set actually because some of them might progress differently. Um, so that way it's not like, and there's a, you'll, there's a video breaking this down in the app that we already shot, right? That's like, it's not yellow means RIR two, it's two to three. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, this is just like in general, you're, you're kind of leaving a couple in tank. I want it to be more generic, more easy to understand and implement and give you a little bit more flexibility. Cause if it says RIR two, like keep a few in the tank, but you're like having one of those days where you just want to get after it and you're staying safe, fucking get after it. Yeah. yeah I don't care. Yeah. So I think that's part of the training experience. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. But, um, all right guys, that is a wrap. A uh, few quick announcements as always, like I did at the beginning of the show. If you want individualized coaching or training through our app, the Taylor trainer, head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com. That's where everything can be found. You can get a free strategy call with a coach and decide what the best route is for you. If you need any fitness equipment, head over to giantlifting.com and use the coupon code TCM10. And for all your supplement needs, firstform.com slash method. We appreciate you guys and we'll catch you next time.